Quite a few years ago, uh, about 1994, there was a movie called The Straight Story, uh, which took everybody by surprise. All the critics absolutely loved it. Uh, has anybody seen The Straight Story? No, I can't see anybody. Uh, it, it was a bit one of those indie movies, uh, a, a little bit uh, arty, uh, a little bit slow, not something you go to the cinema for the special effects. Uh, and I think it surprised a lot of uh, people because the guy that played the main lead actually won the male Oscar that year. It was one of those big, big surprises. But it's um, fascinating because the story uh, was a, a pilgrimage of a 73-year-old man uh, who wanted to mend his broken relationship with his brother. Uh, they lived quite far apart. Uh, about 500 miles uh, away from one another. So he made this makeshift trailer. Uh, the poster is from Italian, so uh, it was the best one that I could find. Makeshift trailer on, on, on this uh, uh, sort of uh, riding lawnmower. And he just went all that journey, camping out in the fields and the backyards and receiving hospitality from the people, crossing the Mississippi River, and so, so forth. A lot of people thought he was a homeless man, but he just wanted to make that journey to reconcile with his brother. There was a health issue which kind of uh, made him quicken his decision to take this step. There's one beautiful uh, situation where, uh, as he was approaching uh, the locality where his uh, brother was there, um, he was speaking to the local pastor, and the local pastor asked him the question. He says, whatever happened between the two of you? So Alvin's eyes teared up as he began to explain, and these are his words. It's a story as old as Cain and Abel. Anger, vanity. Mix that together with liquor, and you've got two brothers who haven't spoken to each other in ten years. The manner of the voice indicated the depth of which there was grieving because of the barrier between the two brothers in there. And then he added, whatever it was that made me and Lyle so mad, it doesn't matter anymore. I want to make peace and sit with him and look up at the stars like we used to when we were kids. Both those things are true. In life, there are broken relationships. And probably the vast majority of us would have a story to tell about a severed or a broken relationship in our own life. And the other thing is true as well, that we have seen and experienced amazing longing for reconciliation. Well, what Paul is writing as we continue to read his letter to the Ephesians, Paul is a, a pastor teacher who writes to a real church, a bunch of Christians in the city of Ephesus, a pagan city filled with a lot of idols, a lot of cultural differences, and yet you have birth. You have to try to get your head around the, the incredible beauty and challenge of this. A church of followers of Jesus, birthed in a pagan city full of all sorts of other religions, all sorts of political views, all sorts of cultures. 
And suddenly you have these people coming from all that diversity together as Christians. And they find themselves worshipping together, reading God's word together, praying together. What's likely to happen, may I ask? Do you think just stuff vanishes just like that? Some of you who are married um, have experienced this. You're all coming from different families. And every family has a culture, a tradition, ways of doing things, ways of thinking about stuff. And when you're coming together, very often, particularly after the sort of, um, um, you know it, that sense of where everything is fine, everything is okay, we can go through every disagreement in life because we're in love. When that wears off, there's a sense in which the reality of the two cultures just clash. And sometimes they clash very violently. And this is what was happening in the church of Ephesus. You had two particular groups, Jews and Gentiles, who became followers of Jesus. And it didn't take very long before there was a clash between the two. And Paul is writing into that very situation of a broken relationship, speaking for reconciliation, trying to bring them together. And the, the, the beautiful thing about this, and, 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 and we must really, 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 really get this as an anchor to the whole principle of what it means to be God's family. Paul doesn't come with emotional language. Paul comes with scripture. And he writes to them a theological, a doctrinal truth that's supposed to shape the relationships that they are seeing in the church. When we are trying to solve relational breakdowns within the church, it isn't emotional stuff that's going to solve it out. It's the foundation of God's word and true doctrine. Sometimes people turn their noses up and they go, oh, doctrine. Oh. But actually, if I'm really honest, that's the right foundation to build on in terms of, in terms of Solving the conflict that is there. And this is what he does. He brings a theological foundation of why the two should be reconciled and there shouldn't be a division in the church. And, you know, this is going all the way. This isn't just about Ephesus. This isn't just about the church in Ephesus or about your marriage with your husband or your wife coming from a different kind of culture. It isn't just about that. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When at the moment when... Adam and Eve sinned against God. The relationship between the two of them was broken, and their relationship with God was broken. So both vertically and horizontally, relationships are a mess because of sin. So when you're asking the question, why is there trouble in the world with wars and division? It goes all the way back to our spiritual ancestors to Adam and Eve. It goes all the way back to Eden. And both our relationship with God and our relationships with one another are messed up because of that. And the answer is Christ. And the, the core message of, of the gospel is a cross in one sense. The division between the two worlds, Jesus comes and brings it together and builds that bridge between man and God and between man and man. That's at the very heart of it. But this is how Paul is uh, expressing how this has to happen. And the first thing that he does when he's explaining to us about the challenges, first of all, he's saying, look, there is actually exclusion and division 
before we meet Jesus Christ. Look at verses 10 to 12 as he's explaining this in a really easy to understand way. Verse 11. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God, and without hope. 11 and 12 just point out to the fact that before Jesus, this is before Jesus, before those people became Christians and joined the church, when they were just simply Gentiles, everything about being a Gentile without Christ was all about that. Exclusion and therefore division from the Jews. That was the picture that Paul is painting in terms of the spiritual reality at the time. He's saying, look, everything about you. You were Gentiles. You were non-Jews, both religiously and in terms of race. You were outsiders. And the Jews used to look at you and say, oh, you uncircumcised. And I tell you what, it was a derogatory term. It was like calling somebody black a certain name. It's like calling somebody gay a certain name. It's like calling somebody that is from a Roma background a certain name. You know it. You've been in the play, school playground, and you know that, and you carried on. In the same way, those who were non-Jews were regarded as less. So Paul is saying, without Christ, you were uncircumcised. You were outside Outside of citizenship, so you had no rights. You're outside of the covenant that God had made with his people. You're outside of God and without hope. Seems pretty damning. It's a terrible state to be in. So what Paul is saying, look, there was a clear division before Jesus. You had God who had chosen his people. Israel was God's chosen people. They were the circumcised. They were the one that knew the Lord. They were the one that were partakers of the covenant. And everything that they were, you were not. So you had that big label slapped upon you, outsider. But then because of Christ, everything changes. And because of Christ's work, because of the cross... You can see the two different sides and the cross in the middle, bridging that gap between exclusion and division. You were actually included and reconciled. Look at verses 13 to 18 at how Paul is reminding them what happens when they find Jesus. But now you have been united with Jesus Christ. Once you were away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So because of Jesus' sacrifice, you who are outsiders were brought in. You're not out anymore. You are in. And Paul builds upon that. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So he's saying to the Gentiles and the Jews in the church, 
the moment you accepted Jesus and he sacrificed through his blood on the cross, that moment the wall of division that was between the two of you had been brought down. And now there isn't a division anymore between Jews and Gentiles because Christ has paid the price for sin. Verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And the hostility towards each other was put to death. So through Christ's death, what happens? Vertical reconciliation. Look at that. Verse 16. Together as one body, that's the church, Christ reconciled both groups to God by the means of his death. So both Jews and Gentiles vertically are reconciled to God by Christ's death on the cross. But also, not just vertical, remember Adam and Eve, their broken relationship with God, Christ rebuilds that, but also horizontally, what Adam and Eve, the blame game <laughs> that was between the two of them, that gets that relational breakdown gets sorted as well. Again, in the second part of verse 16. And our hostility towards each other was put to death, was killed off. It was the end of because of Christ's work. He brought this good news, verse 17, of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to Jews who were near. Now all of us, that's Jews and Gentiles, come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So the salvation for all of us, Jew or Gentile, is the same. And it's that Trinitarian work. It's beautiful how Paul works this in, just as a trivia. It happens because of what Christ has done for us through the Holy Spirit in order to come to the Father. So all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are involved in this vertical reconciliation work in which both Jews and Gentiles can be reconciled to God. And it's a beautiful picture of what God has done in our life. But he continues and he points out how it looks like now. So before, he said, Gentiles... You're not part of the covenant. You're uncircumcised. You're outsiders. You had no God. You had no hope. Now, he's building the picture of their identity. Look at verse 19 onwards. So now, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all God's holy people. You are members of God's family. All those three things. You're not outsiders anymore. You're being brought in. You're citizens. You're not foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. God's holy people. So before you were the uncircumcised. You were the one that were looked down upon spiritually. And now you've become God's holy people. What a contrast. What a privilege. And he says, verse 20, together we are his house built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Jesus Christ himself. 
What's that first word of verse 20? Together. Together. Not alone. Not Jews. Not Gentiles. Together. We are his house. And there are two uh, key ingredients to being, that's the church. That's the church of Jesus. The two key ingredients, Jesus is central. Jesus is the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus needs to be the main focus. Jesus needs to be the, the, the very foundation of everything. And then everything needs to be built on the apostles and the prophets. That's the scriptures. Those are the two elements that, in my opinion, if you really want to simplify, oversimplify and reduce to the very bare minimum. A, a healthy church is a church that is Jesus-centered and word-centered. If you've got those, you kind of get all the other things thrown in in the right way. It'd be a church that loves the Spirit. It'd be a church that does mission. It'd be a church that loves one another. You, you get the whole thing. If we get those two things right, we get it right. And Jesus is saying that's the mark of a healthy church, those two keys. Jesus is the cornerstone and build up the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple to the Lord. Becoming is work in progress. We're not perfect church. If you're looking for a perfect church and you've come to CFM, you're going to be disappointed. I can give that to you in writing because we are becoming. It isn't something that's already happened. But God is at work transforming us into his likeness, becoming a holy temple to the Lord. And the final verse, verse 22, it says, Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of his dwelling, where God lives by his Spirit. It's an incredibly powerful reminder to both Jews and Gentiles in the church in Ephesus. So I can imagine this would have been really, really challenging. I mean, if I would have been a Gentile in the, in the church in Ephesus, I would have felt like second class. And the Jews could have probably started saying, well, you're not circumcised. You don't have the law. And Paul knew that there was a problem in the church, and he thought, that's not right. In Christ, there isn't such a division. So he brings this message to lift their heads up and to create that unifying factor for both Jews and Gentiles, where there's no arrogance on either side and there's no inferiority on either side. There's a sense in Christ we're being brought together. We are saved by the same Savior. It's the same blood, the same cross, the same sacrifice that saves us both, Jew and Gentile. And that's the beautiful part of how unity is encouraged in the church by Paul. And I think there's a, there's a real challenge for, for all of us in, in this. Um, and I think there needs to be a sense of significance because everything, the vast majority of us are Gentiles in, in this room. So actually, the vast majority of what is being said here in order to lift the Gentiles up and not to feel second class and not to feel put down really is something we need to hear. We, we were once outsiders. We are outside of God's covenant. We were uncircumcised. We were marked as heathen. We had no God, no hope, no citizenship. And now because of Christ, good news. We are invited. We are God's people. We are citizens. We are circumcised in our hearts because Paul is talking about the circumcision of the heart, which is actually more significant. And we are included. We are drawn in. We are God's holy people. And that's good news. 
That's amazing news. And we need to embrace that biblical identity. And, and, and here is a pastoral dilemma that I sense. So many people are just chasing after identities. And most of the time, uh, there's two voices, toxic voices. One voice is the voice that comes from inside. I am rubbish. I am nothing. I am terrible. I don't do this well. I don't do that well. It's a toxic voice that we keep listening to. And the other toxic voice is that of people around. And most of the time, you know what? They don't even say anything. But them not saying anything in that gap, in that silence, creates that sense of they don't like me. They don't speak to me. They don't think anything of me. They must be critical of me because they looked at me like that. And we listen to those toxic voices and end up forming our identity based on that instead of basing it on our identity on what Paul says who we are in Christ. We need to go in the morning in front of the mirror and instead of saying, I feel lousy, I am terrible, I, I'm, I, 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 instead of saying, Christ has welcomed me into his family. Now I am a citizen in God's kingdom. Now I am somebody who is forgiven by the blood of Jesus. Now I am somebody who is part of God's holy people. And, that, and you can continue to unpack what Paul is saying. That's what we should be saying every single day to ourselves. And not rely on what we feel. So I you, if we, if we live by what we feel, we're going to be a mess. We need to live on truth, on doctrine, on what God is saying about us. And take it to heart and repeat it to ourselves consistently. Robert Murray McChain used to say something of the, of the nature. Every single time you listen to the voice of yourself or the voice of the devil for, for that, let God's word speak ten times more. Instead of what do we do, we give 30 seconds with God's word devotion. We're in 2024, 30 seconds with God. And then the rest of the day, Satan just keeps speaking into our ear. Social media, stuff you hear, people at work, people at home, people, you know, just all. Well, it's no wonder. We need to counteract that and change it and swap it. And instead of listening to the voice of the enemy, to the toxic voice from inside and outside, to listen to what God is declaring of who we are in Christ. So it's a great reminder for our identity and our sense of significance. It doesn't matter what people say about us. It doesn't even matter what I feel about myself. What really matters is what God thinks about me. And not just what God thinks about me speculatively, because some days we might feel down on ourselves and think, well, God doesn't think much about me. Read the word. What is it that he already said about me? What is factual? Not what I feel or what I think he feels about me. And that's what we need to discover, that sense of significance. We have a bunch of 21st century Christians who are walking wounded because their identity lies somewhere else apart from God's word and what God says about who we are. And that's why we're easy targets for the enemy. We need to rediscover that. And that's why the letter to the Ephesians is so good because it's truth. It, it, it's who we are. It, it, it's a description of my life, of who I am in Christ and my identity. And we need, just like the Gentiles needed to discover that sense of significance, they're not second class, no failures, no outsiders. They are God's chosen people. The second thing it should be causing us to praise. I mean, that stuff that is there that I described to you. My word, what a privilege that outsiders are welcomed in. That's why our worship, when we sing and declare God's praises, should be up 
Not because of how we feel, but because of what is true. Ours once was an uncircumcised, away from God, no hope, no citizenship, no covenant. Loser, big L. And in Christ, now I have the opposite. And that's why when it comes to sing those worship songs, I give it my all. Because it's true, and it's worth celebrating. And it's worth letting the world know, as the psalmist often does, that I have been met with incredible love and grace and favor. And here's the kicker, despite of myself. Despite of the week I've had. Despite of my devotional performance. It's all because of him. And it's never changing. And therefore we should have that attitude and cause for praise. And that is sometimes the most powerful evangelistic vehicle. If the good news that I proclaim with my mouth that I talk about sounds like meh news, well, it's no surprise that other people around me are not going to be excited about it. But if my life is consistently filled with a sense of awe of what Christ has done for me, not that my life is great, not that there is no cancer, not that there is no disability, not that there are no broken relationships or difficult children in our families. No, not because of that. But my life is filled with a sense of awe and wonder and praise because of what Christ has done for me. And no circumstance should take away anything from that. So there should be that sense of praise. And I'm, I'm imagining that the worship in the church in Ephesus, I tell you what, I think the Gentiles were giving it big. Because they knew what it was like to be an outsider, and now they're insiders. I'm sure that the Jews were giving it big, because they've discovered the fulfillment of all God's promises in Christ. So you had a beautiful congregation of people giving it big. Why? Because God is great. And it's brought them together through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and through the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Last but not least, just that pastoral encouragement, you know, about division. One of the interesting things that I read a few years ago, uh, probably at the height of the sort of Black Lives Matter stuff, uh, research was done, sociological research was done in the UK, and they found that actually every week the most racially integrated communities in the UK were churches. And too right, because it's not a social project. It's not something that sociologists or social workers can concoct as a construct, no matter how hard you try. It's because you've got brothers and sisters from all around the world, just like we will be in that moment when we stand before Jesus, brought together by Christ. It's not because we've got the same culture and eat the same food and have the same family traditions. It is because of the cross of Christ who brings all those people together. And that is so powerfully baffling to sociologists when they looked at it and they thought, how is this possible that you can have in a congregation? I think, my last count, we were about 13 or 14 nations in a church in Carnforth, outside of Lancaster, 14, 13, 14 nations. Is there anything else that happens locally where you have something like that? No chance. Why? It's because of Christ. Unfortunately, I think the culture wars that have come upon us over the last five, six, seven years have seriously undermined that. Seriously undermined that. 
and churches have been absolutely messed up. And people have fallen out with each other because one thinks vaccines are right and one thinks vaccines are wrong. And I just think we need to do what the church in Ephesus was encouraged to do. We don't do, uh, you know, unity and reconciliation because the pastor says, behave yourselves, be united. I just think we need to come back. And that's why I said to you, the foundation of unity was doctrinal. It was God's word. Frankly, and I'm picking up a random thing, you know, on the vaccines because it's probably the safest one to pick on. Frankly, it doesn't really say anything in the Bible about whether you should have a measles vaccine or not have a measles vaccine. I'm choosing that one not to get even more controversial. Why fall out on it? You can have your opinion, I can have my opinion, and good grounds on it. But why fall out on that? If we're having to discuss and debate something, let's open God's word and say, I can see here that it says here, and you can see here that it says here, what do we do with this? It's a much better way to have a conversation. And it might be that we fall out. It really might be. Because you might be saying, I believe this, and I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, I can't find it here. I can't go along with that. It's all right to have a division or a separation. If, we, if you believe something that isn't in the Word of God, or if I believe something that isn't in the Word of God, that's okay. That's, that's, that, that's normal. But if there's stuff that isn't there, honestly, I plead with you, do not let politics and the culture wars become something that we fall out over. And instead, let's maintain the centrality of Christ, the centrality of God's Word, and have that sense of walking together as brothers and sisters in Christ, conservatives, labor, renew, greens, whatever you have, you know, standing in Christ. And I know I'm oversimplifying things, but I still think the point remains. The church of Jesus Christ should have people that are united under the rulership and authorship uh, and, 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 and authority of King Jesus. He is my president. He is my king above everybody else. He is my first loyalty. And the constitution that we have, primary constitution, is God's word. What is it that God has said in his word? And under his authority and under his constitution, we live our life. And as his spirit brings that sense of unity where brothers and sisters dwell together in unity like the Jews and Gentiles of the Ephesian church. We need to pray into this. We need to pray into this. Satan, right from the very beginning, his most strategic weapon to destroy anything that God makes is disunity. He's done it with Adam and Eve. Read throughout the scripture. Everything is peppered with this. He's trying to break down relationships. That's why marriages are breaking down. That's why parents are having difficulties with their children. That's where we're falling apart as a nation with, with disunity and we're shouting at each other over so many different things. And Satan is rubbing his hands and he's saying, I'm loving this. The church of Jesus Christ should be a countercultural movement inspired by the Spirit of God under the power of God as a kingdom people where we say this isn't going to be happening to us as God's people. We're going to be watching over this. We're going to be praying over this. We're going to be fighting with love over this. We're going to keep that unity in Christ because that's who we are. 
where his people have been brought together where there's no separation wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And I think the message that Paul brought liberated and set free the church in Ephesus and prepared it for thriving because the Jews weren't looking down on the Gentiles and the Gentiles weren't getting, oh, who are you to tell me this? But he said both were being brought before the foot of the cross under the authority of Jesus, both in awe of what Christ has done for them. That's where we should be. That's where we need to come, at the foot of the cross, saying, Jesus, you are my all in all, and I've got eyes for you alone. And I tell you what, this is the beautiful thing. If we love Christ and submit to him, we'd find ourselves loving people. But we need to get it right. That first, submitting and loving Jesus to let his love flow through us to all those around us. And you might be finding yourself loving people you would have never thought it would be possible. And that's the kind of church I want us to be in that sense, where actually we're mature enough to realize we can have a different political opinion. We can like Indian food or Chinese food or Italian food or, even more so importantly, British food, you know, and not have a problem with it, you know, and still be brothers and sisters in that. It's such a joy to know that God is bringing us together. We're going to get the band to come back, and we're going to sing Cornerstone, celebrating who Jesus is, and having that sense in which we're committing ourselves again to submitting to him, because he is our all in all. Let's stand together.